0: Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, that is, with episode 406 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again, and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened this past week across NXT, NXT, And AEW NXT a few weeks away from its new roadblock television special AEW of course officially on the road to revolution plenty going down across both brands this week which means there is plenty for us to discuss right here on the getting over wrestling podcast we are going to do that momentarily before we get into our breakdowns of NXT and AEW a reminder that this show is on About So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a few extra moments, leave a five-star written review, because if you do, we will read it live right here on the podcast. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more. You can get it all on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Overcast. Let's also not forget that this week as we're taping and executing this podcast is indeed Elimination Chamber Week for WWE. If you have not listened to it already, We have a WWE Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview episode in our podcast feed. You are going to want to hear that before the big show on Saturday. If you happen to be listening to all of this much closer to the event, there are timestamps in the episode description, so you can jump right to the Elimination Chamber Ultimate Preview. Either way, that show is there waiting for you. We will be having a WWE Elimination Chamber pre-show live on Twitter Spaces. This Saturday, most likely 6.30 p.m. Eastern, 90 minutes before the show actually goes on the air for WWE, and then as soon as Elimination Chamber goes off the air, Saturday night, early Sunday morning, we will bring you a WWE Elimination Chamber Instant Analysis Podcast right here in the feed for you to listen to, so be sure to subscribe if you're a first-time listener. If not, then you're already anticipating that Instant Analysis episode. Again, all of it here in the feed and live on Twitter spaces at Getting Overcast. All that said, let's officially get into today's show. We're going to break down NXT and AEW. As always, I just mentioned it about timestamps in the episode description. If you only happen to be a viewer or fan or one or the other, NXT, AEW, you can hit the episode description, find the timestamp for the segment you want to listen to. But as always, I hope you listen through the entire show. Normally, On this Thursday edition, I shouldn't say normally, the vast majority of times on this Thursday show, we kick things off with AEW. We're going to be reversing that this week. I got a lot to talk about from NXT and AEW. I'm a little bit more enthusiastic this week to talk NXT because of what we actually got on the television program. When you look at AEW, there's a lot left to be desired. So we're going to be talking about all of that today, but we are kicking off with NXT and we're starting that with Braun Breaker, the NXT champion, who began hour two kind of getting drowned out in his promo by a light Braun Breaker sucks chant to the tune of John Cena's theme. So, you know, Braun Breaker sucks, like that type of deal. Uh, he was beginning to address Carmelo Hayes as his presumed next challenger when Indu Share interrupted. Jinder Mahal said he admires how Breaker has carried NXT but he pointed out how some of the crowd is turning on him. The fans chanted again. Jinder stumbled around in his promo saying, the tide is turning before challenging for the title next week. Braun poked them about being the new three-man band. Ginger said the crowd won't feel bad for Braun when he drops the title, but Ginder will. There was also a mellow save us chant at some point during this segment. Look, we have been talking about Breakers' title reign and booking being shit for months on this podcast. And while the Grayson Waller feud was his best since Dolph Ziggler nearly a year ago at this point. We said the last couple of weeks that fans would turn on him once Melo became the number one contender, both because, well, Melo is him, and because Braun has been a really shitty babyface with no real gimmick, and he's pretty much almost entirely living off his generational status and his raw athletic talent at this point. Creative has done him no favors, and other than becoming more comfortable on the mic, His promo has not actually improved. He just screams and yells. It's his default emotion. And there's really, sometimes he does it for no reason whatsoever. Now, is it possible that these chants were planted to fuel a double turn storyline? Maybe. I would call that plausible. You can get away with doing that in a studio setting like what NXT has in the Performance Center. But if they weren't planted, then it's really hard to blame the fans for feeling that way because... Breaker's reign has gone too long and his weaknesses remain on full display. Now, Braun will surely beat Gender as perhaps a last feather in his cap as champion, taking down another former main roster world champion. But when he loses to Melo, at Stand and Deliver, you know, WWE, they really need to ensure they do not call Breaker up. He needs at least another year in NXT, if not two. And he has to spend time being a heel without the championship, maybe being a babyface as well without the championship, because right now, Breaker is ice cold. And I should also mention, Jinder was piss poor in this segment. He did not carry his weight at all. So, Breaker was rough. Jinder didn't help. The whole thing just did not play out well. We had Roxanne Perez and Meiko Satomura against Caden Carter and Katana Chance in a scheduled women's tag team match main event. The Casey's earlier in the show apologized to Roxy for acting like asses last week. She accepted their apology, but made sure they still wanted to actually fight, which they did. The Casey's respected Miko as the final boss, and Roxy thanked her for showing up, with Miko saying she had her reasons. Now I'm glad they did this because we pointed out last week how absurd it was for the Casey's to again show that annoying semi-heel type of side for no actual reason, while they were blaming Roxy, who had absolutely nothing to do with their loss, and she has nothing to do with actually booking the show. The segment didn't make sense last week. Their like mini brief one-night heel turn didn't make sense three or four months ago when they did it the last time. Their baby faces, the crowd wants to cheer them, book them well, bring them up to the main roster. Let's get it over with. In terms of the match, Sadamora ate a codebreaker and assisted her Karana out of the corner from Chance. Mako came back with a Pele kick on Carter before Roxy hit Pop Rocks and got the victory. After the bell, Mako asked Roxy to return the favor by giving her a title match. Perez said it would be her honor and bowed to her, and it was clarified by Vic Joseph right before we went off the air. This would be a TV match, most likely at NXT Roadblock, which is a special we're getting a few weeks before we go with Stand and Deliver on WrestleMania weekend. So there was good action in the match. Surprisingly, despite the immense talent of Mako and Roxy, we've seen better from the KC's. And I think maybe that's because the agency was to ensure they didn't outshine the champion and her partner. You know, the KC's are a legitimate women's tag team. And if you have them doing a bunch of cool combination moves and Roxy and Mako are basically wrestling as two singles who happen to be a pair for the match, Maybe it would outshine them. I don't know. My hope is this is not the start of a heel turn for the Casey's, but rather it was their final match ahead of the call-up that we've been wanting to enhance the women's tag team division on the main roster. As far as Perez against Ademora, there is no world in which Roxy should beat her, particularly in a TV match. I'm sure it's going to be a really nice match with an inside cradle or a similar trap pinfall type of finish. Or maybe there's a straight DQ from whoever Roxy's next challenger is going to be. I'm sure as hell here for the match happening, but Satamora is a Hall of Fame level legend, still very much in her career. I think she's 42. Uh, you know, Perez is literally half her age. I get that she's champion. It's cool. She does not need to beat her on television. Not clean, um, not with her finisher at a minimum. Uh, Tyler Bate, fought and Waller. This opened the show. Bate beat that ass early with Waller kind of running around commentary, trying to escape him at one point. Bate countered the rolling cutter with his rebound lariat and did the helicopter slam. Waller came back with his flip over unprettier and mocked Shawn Michaels with tuning up the band only to get caught by Bate. Waller then got caught again, cheating on a pinfall attempt with the ropes, only for the referee to stop counting. Bate reversed the combination for the win. Waller went off after the bell. He continued arguing in gorilla position with HBK and Matt Bloom, who he called A Train, which really popped me. If he called him Prince Albert, that's the only way it would have been better. HBK called for the commercial break and ended the segment. And Waller later posted a video of him being kicked out while still ranting at HBK, calling him washed up a stooge, stuff like that. The match was solid but unspectacular. Bait going over was the right call from a storyline standpoint and because you want to rebuild him in his comeback. Waller remains strong in his ranting and anger directed at Shawn Michaels. This does seem to be set up for Waller to be like the opponent for a special WrestleMania weekend surprise, whether that comes from the main roster or outside. It could be Dragon Lee making his debut. Uh, There were some visa issues, which is why we haven't seen him yet. It could be a returning Shinsuke Nakamura, who obviously for an NXT crowd would get a massive reaction. Or it could also be, an out-of-left-field shocker, like obviously we had Jushin Thunder Liger previously when he fought Tyler Breeze. It could be another surprise signing, someone who's an independent that they're just doing a one match with. Who knows? The idea would be the surprise signing gets the win and Waller then debuts on Raw or SmackDown the following week, given this guy, he's already 32 years old, he probably needs to be called up sooner than later. He can go in the ring, he's capable on the mic. We've already seen him on Raw, Uh, you know, pretty much was it a year ago, 18 months ago? He did a couple of those segments. So if he's not gonna be NXT champion, which it doesn't look like he's going to be, unless you're gonna immediately put him into a storyline with Wes Lee and have him beat Wes Lee for the North American Championship, it does feel like Waller, he's aging out. It may be time to get him up there and just move on with his career. And I would say either put him with Miz, which I know is like an eye roll that they always do. Someone new comes up, they put him with Miz, but either put him with Miz and quickly turn on him, or make sure you keep him on a different show because they're far too similar on the mic and personality-wise to be competing for space on one program. So we will see what happens with Waller, but that's just my take based on what we got Tuesday on NXT. Now, JC Jane said last week was the end of Toxic Attraction officially and the beginning of her own story. She wore a really cool cartoon t-shirt of her boot Gigi Dolan's face. JC was proud about being the talk of NXT over the last week and only regretted not pulling the trigger sooner. She called herself the only victim. She called Gigi Janetti, and said them being separated will expose Dolan. Then she tore apart the crowd saying she didn't fit in Toxic previously, yet she's still the last one standing in the end. Easily J.C.'s best promo in NXT. Like, not even close. Uh, she held court in the ring. She didn't slip up at all. She commanded the crowd. I would say if we were grading it, she would get like a B-plus here. And when Gigi returns, hopefully she gets a really big baby face pop opposite her. It sure sounds like this might be a last woman standing match at Stand and Deliver. And if that's what they do, it's gonna make a lot of sense. Indy Hartwell backstage admitted to enjoying seeing Gigi get her skull kicked in last week because she hates Toxic. But at the same time, she said, hey, JC has it coming for her as well, and JC needs to get behind me in line when it comes to contending for the Women's Championship. So I presume the booking will be JC going over Indy before Hartwell gets called up. But hey, I've thought that for months now. JCGG has to be a stand-and-deliver match, as I just said, and that means Roxy's challenger needs to be someone else. Now, it could be Sadamura, it could be Hartwell, maybe it's someone out of left field, but it will be curious to see what they actually do with Roxanne Perez at that show. We had a North American Championship Open Challenge with Wesley in the ring. Tony D'Angelo and Stack stalked him as he walked to the ring, and then they answered the challenge, only to get taken out immediately by Dijak. That opened the door for Vaughn Wagner to come in from behind and blindside Wes, tossing him around. He drilled Wes's head into the announce table a half dozen times. Mr. Stone kept yelling at him, yo, get him in the ring. That's the only way you can actually win the title. Vaughn didn't listen. He kept doing it. Wagner eventually sta- snapped that Stone, uh, but maintained control once he got in the ring. Wes avoided being chucked outside as he was in that ladder match, which in that crazy spot, he drilled Vaughn with kicks and knees before hitting the cardiac kick finisher for the win. Wagner later went wild in the locker room. Stone explained, hey, you lost not because you're not talented, but because your walls are up and you're not making connections with anyone, the fans, me, or anyone else. He again did the help me help you reference, of course, from Jerry Maguire. And to my utter shock, he even mentioned the come Tuesday meme uh, from Twitter involving Von Wagner, which was hysterical. That's now like canon on WWE television. Uh, And then he continued laying down the law for him as the segment kind of ended. This was a nice win for Wesley against a larger, stronger challenger and a solid continuation of the Wagner storyline that we saw start last week with Stone. Now, there's a report out there that Stone may not be long for NXT for a good reason that I will not spoil. And this makes sense as a potential way to split them in storyline, because certainly Vaughn is not going to be winning a title anytime soon, nor should he be getting called up to the main roster. Gallus were playing pool in a pub when Pretty Deadly interrupted, saying they could beat them in the ring. Not just that, they could also beat them in billiards. Gallus obviously won easily, so PD suggested a rematch with a tag team title shot on the line. So here I am thinking, oh, they're just pool sharking them. They're about to wipe the floor. It's going to be really funny. Great segment. P, uh, Gallus said, hey, look, as long as you keep buying our beers, we'll play. So I'm like, all right, it'll be one or two games and then. Pretty Deadly's going to murder them. Instead, Gallus went 8-0, and and after Pretty Deadly got stuck with a really comically long bill, Gallus said all you guys had to do was ask for a title shot. Now, look, I love all four of these guys, and there was one funny moment here. If you saw it, you know the exact moment that was funny. But other than that, this was quite terrible. That is one big pile of shit. Uh, Isla Dragunov backstage said he was just beginning to get retribution on JD McDonough. Trick Williams called him out Uh, from the ring and maintained his trash talk for a good minute plus. Dragunov put over Trick's mic skills only to get sucker punched. He came back immediately with a kick. McDonough interrupted with a bandage over his eye for a legitimate torn retina that happened last week. And that has delayed this feud in reality. JD threatened more so Trick could get up on Isla and continue to mock his conducting. Uh, Trick ranted backstage. He would take down Isla. Mello tried to set him straight saying, hey, Dragunov is not someone to mess with. But he was actually impressed how confident Williams was. So it does seem like Dragunov is going to get Williams next week as McDonough continues recovering. Makes a lot of sense as an interim feud, given Melo obviously was involved. So it makes just perfect sense to have these guys be fighting because you set it up a week ago, even though you didn't expect the injury thing to happen. There you go. It still all works together. Fine segment overall. Uh, The Ghost Booker, one of our followers on Twitter, wrote in. He said, Carmelo's obviously long overdue for a call-up. And a potential face of the company guy. I disagree that he's overdue for a call up. I'm fine with him staying for, in NXT for another year. I digress, he said. But uh, am I wrong in saying Trick Williams is himself a rising star? He seems to have some promo mic skills. Great in ring wrestling is everywhere now, but Trick is already really good on the mic and can only get better. So Trick Williams is what I like to call personality plus. You've heard me say that on the show before. And If that sounds like a weird reference that you just can't place, it's from the movie Swingers. Uh, You probably can find the scene It's in the diner. It's at the end of the movie. But Trick has charisma oozing out of him. The in-ring work is okay, but if he can just improve to where he's as good in the ring as like Kevin Nash or Baron Corbin, who are both massively underrated as in-ring performers, then Trick could package that together and actually be a rising star. Right now, he's the perfect big man heater for Melo, and that's a role he should be keeping until they debut on the main roster, and then eventually split in like an HBK Diesel type of fashion. But right now, they both need at least one more year in NXT, and they both need each other. Because while Carmelo Hayes can tell a story in the ring, he doesn't really hit with the one-liners. Trick Williams has one-liners for days, but he doesn't really tell his story when he's on the mic. And being a good promo is not just having the one-liners. The rock wasn't great because of Poontang Pie. And do you smell what the rock is cooking? And it doesn't matter what your name is. He's not he wasn't good because of all those. Those helped make him great. The Rock was really good because he could tell a story and take you on a journey with his promo to make you feel something, to bring you into the area that he wanted you to go. So Trick can't do that right now. He has the one-liners, he has the, the personality plus, he has the charisma, but he still has to develop the actual promo skills and he needs to develop in the ring. When he does, I do agree. He has the chance to be a major star for WWE, but he's just not there yet. He definitely needs more time. And I believe Melo needs more time too. Melo, if you put him on the main roster tomorrow, you wouldn't think twice that he didn't belong there. That's not what I'm saying, but he, what he needs. And he did the a champion thing with the North American title. He did it successfully. I want to see him in NXT as the main champion doing the major feuds, main eventing, um, cutting promos, you know, you know, developing storylines with his promos and, and telling stories, everything that I just talked about, not saying he can't do it, and he has. He's done a lot of it. He does it a lot better than Trick does at this point. But I want to see him do it on a larger scale. And when he gets the opportunity to do that, a call-up, it's going to be immediate. I mean, you know, for all we know, he could win the title, have a four-month reign, and get called up at SummerSlam or something like that. So, you know, I don't know how long Mello is there for, but for me, if it was up to me, I would spend the next year, if I was in NXT, uh, developing Trick in the ring and on the mic, and ensuring they are as strong of a pair as possible before calling them up. We have seen wrestlers develop on the main roster. Braun Sherman for a big man is a great example. He was green as hell when he joined the Wyatt family on the main roster. And then slowly but surely he became many would argue one of the best, best, if not the best, big man wrestlers from an athleticism standpoint in the industry, given his sizes. It's absolutely incredible. We talked about it on Tuesday's show. Trick Williams is a big dude, former football player for South Carolina. He has all the ability in the world. He's still young. He just started. Give him time. Let's not rush him. Uh, Thea Hale fought Tiffany Stratton. Hale was jumpy after last week's abduction by Ava Rain, but refused to let Chase U push back her match. 30 seconds into the match, Dyad stood near the Chase U student section as a distraction. After 60 seconds, Joe Gacy distracted her from the crow's nest. Stratton hit a springboard senton bomb, but only landed her legs on it. After two minutes. Ava Rain came in to distract from the crowd, with Hale eating one final kiss, a.k.a. the prettiest moonsault ever for the win. Clunky match between a couple green talents. Stratton does continue to impress in spots. I want to see her against veteran competition. She needs to grow. There's nothing wrong with doing this match, I guess, because Stratton beating Hale is a no-brainer anyway, but she needs to be developing in developmental, not kind of wasting time doing stuff like this. Axiom fought Damon Kemp after some hot Axiom offense. Kemp hit a few wheelbarrow German suplexes. He leveled Axiom with a discus lariat and hit an electric chair German with a bridge as well. But Axiom came back with a PK and the golden ratio and got the win. This was really well booked. Kemp looked fantastic offensively, only for Axiom who he's on a bit of a run right now and he's getting over with fans. Him going over in the finish was the right decision. If this was a longer and more hotly contested match, I might have actually graded it, but a fun match that got both guys over successfully. And I've said this before, I'll repeat it. I'm going to be absolutely floored if Damon Kemp's brother, Gable Steveson, ends up anywhere near as good as Kemp is. Unless there's some like huge surprise from Steveson that we haven't seen, Kemp seems way advanced both in terms of personality and obviously in ring since we haven't seen Ste- Steveson wrestle in terms of professional wrestling at all to this point. Uh, Jensen confessed to Briggs backstage that He's not just a virgin. He's never been on base. Briggs told him the 90-10 rule and then tried to demonstrate when Fallon Henley interrupted and Briggs accidentally blurted it out. So Henley gave him even more advice and they sent him on the date like a pair of proud parents. So we later saw pictures from the date as Henley obsessed over, maybe I should tell Jensen about that guy, Zach, and this, that whole deal. They later got to Kiana James' door, Jensen and James did, Just as she fiddled with her keys, giving an indication that Jensen should go in for the kiss, uh, Henley and Briggs appeared with Henley calling her out about Zach, the guy she was talking to, on her cell phone. As was obvious from the second this whole storyline started, Zach was indeed her brother. Not only that, he was staying with her. Uh, There was no kiss from Jensen, and the guys walked away really disappointed in Fallon that she basically... C blocked him more than anything else. Uh, The Briggs and Jensen stuff at the start, it was good. It was worth a smirk, kind of funny. The rest of this was absolute shit. If Roman Reigns sees everything that happens on SmackDown from home, surely at some point over the last three weeks, Kiana could tell her acquaintance, her partner, and her co champion, hey, I remember you being concerned about Zach. It's my brother. I don't know why you're pitching such a fit about this entire thing. If this happened within one hour on a single episode, like James was on the phone call at the start, then her and Jensen went on the date, and then at the end of the show, Henley was like, why don't you tell him who Zach is? Then okay, it would have been fine. It would make all the sense in the world. But to stretch this out over three weeks, give me a break. Also, the acting was horrendous throughout this. I gave them credit a few weeks ago from improving their work, but it's just going downhill. I gotta do it. This was just bad TV. Zero point zero. Javier Bernal entered the Diamond Mine Dojo, asking Tatum Paxley to be his valentine. She said she's taken, so he tried to ask Ivy Nile, only to eventually get a chokehold from her. Suddenly, Ila Don's voice spoke over a speaker in the dojo, trying to drive a wedge between the partners. It was a fun little segment that's going to set up a tag team win for Dawn and Alba Fire, I'm sure, as they build a resume on the way to, I guess, getting a title match at Stand and Deliver. Javi was funny as usual, but the speaker gimmick that they tried to do was so weird. It's like they try to make it this mystical power, but so what? Isla Dawn has Bluetooth. I have Bluetooth. I can do the same thing. I just didn't exactly understand what they were doing there. Apollo Crews threw his journal on the ground, feeling betrayed by Daba Kato, questioning what he did and why he did it. Cruz said his focus now turns to revenge. It was a nice little promo package without the vision gimmick bullshit that we've been dealing with. Apollo continues to improve on the mic, and this was proof of it. So now, if it's NXT, let's just hope they keep him away from the dumb vision gimmick, keep this on track, have him beat Kato, and then move on. Sol Ruka got a video package calling herself a free spirit and explaining how her parents are cool parents, and she also put over her own finisher. She wanted a rematch with Zoe Stark because she always gets up and tries again when she falls. I thought it was solid overall given it was taped, a good first step in showing her character. I kind of wish they did it like a month ago when she started wrestling on TV. You know, don't have someone have like four or five matches on TV and then tell us about them. If you want to do one and then introduce them the second time, that's Okay. But yeah, don't have someone be on TV for a month, month and a half, and then say, oh, by the way, this is who the person is. Hank Walker fought Charlie Dempsey. Walker showed Drew Gulak his new singlet, but was sad that his new boots did not arrive in time. So Gulak lent him his own silver boots. Walker got in a couple submission holds early. Dempsey countered into a crossface trap for a quick tap out. Dempsey locked it back in after the bell. Gulak began to jump into the ring to help, but instead he stopped and walked alongside Dempsey. To the back, leaving Walker behind by himself in the ring. This went as expected, and we finally got the payoff that dragged out a bit too long. The question is whether Gulak is going to do a full catch-point style faction or just a small team or a group. I'm going to be really interested to see that play out. Overall, NXT solid episode, top to bottom, left some to be desired. The wrestling that we've gotten on TV has not been great over the last few weeks. No issues whatsoever with Vengeance Day. There was some strong wrestling on that show, but the TV wrestling in-ring has not been great overall. And, you know, at this point, we're kind of... When you shove a TV special like Roadblock between one premium live event and another, I don't have a problem with that. I think it's a really good idea when you have two months, you do a TV special at the one-month point, and then you do the premium live event. But it's strange because your crowd, your fans everyone's expecting the build for Stand and Deliver to happen right now. You've already pretty much determined a number one contender in Carmelo Hayes, but you're not having them go face-to-face. And we're still another like week out, I think, if not two weeks out, building for uh, this Roadblock show. So then you're delaying actually getting to that feud until after that's over. Then you have three weeks left before WrestleMania weekend, Stand and Deliver, and it just feels a little bit rushed. So we'll see how they do next week. But again, I'm liking some of what we're getting from a storytelling standpoint. The in ring product is leaving a little bit to be desired. And yes, it is developmental, and I'm not expecting four or five star bangers on NXT television. But there was a good period of time where we were getting, you know, three and a half, three, seven, five, four star matches pretty consistently during this, you know, new era, uh, one per show at least. And we just haven't really been able to sink our teeth into that recently. Maybe it's a product of who's there and who's not at this point. It's really tough to say, but I'd like to see a little bit more concentration on the in-ring wrestling and a little bit more cohesiveness when it comes to the storytelling, and really not just the storytelling on the show, but how it makes sense on a week-to-week basis. Of course, the Briggs and Jensen thing, which I got way more upset about than I should have, that's just an example of it, though, where it just doesn't make sense that these people were on SmackDown. Everyone knows what's going on, but on NXT, these people all live in the same area. It's basically like they're still in, it's like wrestling college. And yet, no one over a three week period can ask another person, Hey, who was that on the phone? Why wouldn't you tell me? Why are you keeping it a secret? You know, what's going on? Just tell me it's your brother. Or that the other person would just seek them out and say, Hey, it's my brother. You're freaking out for no reason, which is what normal human beings would do. All right, let me get away from that. I'm getting upset about it again for no reason. Let's move over to AEW, where we are going to talk about Dynamite and Rampage together based on the segment. So if it's something with Brian Danielson, we talk about all Brian Danielson and then we move forward from there. This week with AEW, I just thought, candidly, it was among the least interesting weeks of television they have put together in months. The worst part is while we've had some problems with creative and their storytelling over the last few weeks, we were always able on this podcast to say, hey, at least they're putting on bangers. I mean, I think I said for the last three weeks in a row, there were three matches on each Dynamite that were 3.75 stars or better. That's crazy. That, that, that high level of wrestling on television is nuts. So yeah, if you're gonna struggle from a storytelling and creative standpoint, but you're putting on banger matches, I still wanna see your show. Unfortunately, this Wednesday, that wasn't even the case. There was no saving grace. Tony Khan won't even be able to absurdly claim the cage match ratings are good this week. I don't know if you guys saw that he said that last week. It was absolutely laughable. The problem right now in AEW is there's just not a compelling reason to tune into the show each week unless there is a high quality match on the card. Do I really need to hear MJF call himself the devil again? Do you really need to hear Hangman and Mox Repeat the same stuff because the feud that was supposed to be over still isn't over. And I don't disagree with the way they booked it. I'm just making the point. Do you really need to see a WWE Divas era NWO knockoff that is completely flatlining? You don't. And all of this is self inflicted. Now they have a few weeks left before Revolution. And I think I said on last week's show, I believe they can turn the tide. I still do, in many ways, believe they can turn the tide. But a lot of this is just. It's just not working, and it feels like we're in line for another rushed pay-per-view build. Not for everything. Obviously, there's two matches on the card, the top two storylines that are booked, and they make sense, and the storylines are solid, and there's no issues whatsoever there. But almost everything else, sure, there's some storylines that are developing into what the booking will be for Revolution, but none of it is that enthralling. And there's a lot of things, for example, Swerve Strickland, we're making the assumption he's going to be fighting Keith Lee, where it's like, okay, well, you know, you're looking at your watch, time's ticking. Let's get to this. Why is this guy fighting Dustin Rhodes still? Why is he still worried about second generation performers? Let's get into the Keith Lee feud. Let's bring it back and get it ready for the show. So we'll talk all about that right now as we break down Dynamite and Rampage. We'll start with Dynamite for this part of the show, where Brian Danielson in a Promo taped backstage last week exclaimed that everyone knows he has more heart and soul than MJF, whose act last week proved he was scared and desperate. Strong but short promo from Brian. The gimmick this week was that MJF was contractually obligated to appear in Laredo, Texas. So MJF opened hour two with the same Noablo Espanol joke from last week and the same on the double line. The crowd, though, was hot. It tried drowning him out with STFU chants. He said Brian is a horrible person who takes his gifts for granted and claims to be better in the ring when he's not. MJF then made fun of fans for liking Brian's technical prowess and match quality, saying the only reason to wrestle is to become champion. He admitted Brian will be a tough hill to climb in an Iron Man match, but promised he would again prove his path and make sure that he is the best wrestler in the world by the time the final bell sounds. And then he introduced Christopher Daniels as one of Brian's mentors and rivals, who he said was going to prove his point. CD comes into the ring. He immediately reveals MJF paid him money to denigrate Brian on TV, but he wouldn't take it because Danielson will quote, knock your dick in the dirt. Uh, CD put over Brian's run in Ring of Honor, saying it was real wrestling, making a veiled comparison to WWE. He said AEW and MJF wouldn't exist without Ring of Honor. And the closer was CD saying Brian is what MJF wishes he could be, the best wrestler in the world. MJF slapped the mic out of his hand. Daniels eventually smacked him back and MJF locked in salt of the earth until Brian ran in for the save. And this remained the one storyline that truly has juice at this juncture with Revolution Ahead. This wasn't spectacular by any means, but it was solid from top to bottom. No complaints, really. MJF's promo was repetitive, but Daniels added some fire to the segment. Danielson saving his mentor friend, whatever, former coworker or current coworker, I guess, uh, you know, it's it's fine. It's not quite a steal with CM Punk. It did feel repetitive that they were trying to do something similar with that. Uh, you know, it's not Daniels trying to pump up Danielson, but it's him speaking on his behalf to some degree as well. So, you know, again, some stuff left to be desired here, but solid top to bottom and the build for this match, whether it should be an Iron Man match or not from a stipulation standpoint, we've already discussed that, but the build is fine. We're getting there. It's going to be a strong main event. On Rampage, Ruby Soho fought Marina Shafir. Ruby won with Destination Unknown. This was basically the typical Rampage match when someone has something bigger coming up on Dynamite. It got the standard double commercial break. Soraya and Tony Storm came down for a confrontation afterward when Britt Baker and Jamie Hayter attacked them blind. They got separated. Soho stayed in the ring. She decided not to take sides. And this led to the triple threat being announced live as if it was off the cuff. It's the same match that was originally scheduled a few weeks ago. If you remember, I criticized that at the time for being a triple threat without a reason for being a triple threat. And here we are weeks later in the exact same situation. The Rampage segment should probably have resulted in a tag team match between Soraya and Storm against Baker and Hater. Soho was completely uninvolved, standing in the ring by herself. Now, if this happened in the ring, and Ruby got hit and then hit someone back, or she tried to physically break them up from fighting, okay, then there's a reason to do a triple threat wrestling match, Ruby is involved in the storyline, but to this point, only tangentially, they're like, we want you to be on our side, okay, fine, but why are you gonna have her fight against one member of each team, it, it just doesn't make any sense, it's ship booking, plain and simple, The match was a great idea. Storm, Soho, and Baker, I wanna see that. But you have to do something on TV specifically that builds it as a triple threat match, a reason for the match happening beside the fact that two people are pulling her in different directions. Why does she wanna fight either of them right now? She doesn't have a reason to do so. So now let's get to that match on Dynamite, Storm, Soho, Baker, triple threat. This main evented, it started with 10 minutes left and there was a three minute commercial during it. This is the main event of the show. Early story was who Ruby would wrestle and who she wouldn't, and guess what? She fought both of them because, you know, it's a triple threat match, and she's not on either of their teams. Soraya distracted Britt. Baker later rolled up Storm during a German suplex attempt for a double spot that was pretty cool. She hit a ripcord elbow strike and swinging neckbreaker on Storm. Tony cold-cocked Ruby flying and put her in the Texas Cloverleaf with Britt running in attempting to double up with Lockjaw. So Soraya, who again, wasn't in the match, broke the fall. Storm hit Hater with a Tornado DDT off the apron. Again, Hater not in the match. Soraya took out Baker with her swinging move. Then Soraya spray-painted green spray paint on Storm's ass. She literally bent over so she could spray-paint her own ass and ran into the other corner to hit Baker with a hip attack. But Soho threw Storm outside after that, she threw her into Soraya, and rolled up Baker for the win. After the bell, Soraya slapped Ruby, I guess for winning a triple threat match, then Hater yelled at her also, and they both left with Ruby again, standing alone in the ring, not hitting anybody. At least Ruby won this match, but this was overbooked nonsense. Let's start with the simplest criticism of the entire thing spray painting your partner's ass when they're wearing slick plastic vinyl leather gear whatever it was and it's black that ain't working and it has no impact on the finish or how baker looked if you want to spray paint her in the eyes and and get green all over her face that's going to work then you have to use regular paint this is not how spray paint works it's like they didn't even attempt to do it and see hey is this even going to work if we do it or is it going to look Stupid, guess what? It looked stupid. Pure stupidity to do that spot at all. Now let's move on to things that actually matter. The story of how will Ruby align? It's fine on its own. Soraya being mad that Ruby won a match that she was in as a singles competitor. And not only did she win the match, by the way, she pinned Britt, who Saraya hates. So she should have been at least a little bit happy about that. It didn't make sense, even if she did throw Tony out of the ring. Now, it should have been the better of two evils for Soraya. Ideally, she should have come into the ring thinking that meant Soho was on their side, given that she pinned Baker. So maybe she tries to shake her hand, Ruby denies her, then Soraya gets heated after that. It almost seemed like they were setting up for a triple threat for the title, haters Soho and Soraya, which would be nearly an identical match to what we just got here in kayfabe, a surprise person aligning with one side or another before revolution wouldn't make sense because then you could create a six-woman match for the show, except Hater is champion and you have to assume the championship is gonna get defended on one of only four pay-per-views that AEW offers per year. So I don't have a strong handle on the plan and unless mercedes Monet factors into all of it, which it's definitely possible just given the context of the angle, I am not sure how this ultimately resolves itself in an exciting, satisfying manner. On Rampage, Blackpool Combat Club fought Kip, Sabian, Butcher, and Blade. Sabian took the swing. Blade took the sharpshooter. Butcher ate a cutter from John Moxley and a German suplex from Wheeler Yuda. Claudio Castagnoli hit Blade with an interesting fireman's carry slam that I hadn't seen before. Mox pushed Claudio out of the way, catching Sabian springing with a cutter before Claudio beat Blade with a European uppercut. This went 15 minutes, one quarter of the show. You may be asking, Silver King, why did this match happen? What did it accomplish? I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine. On Rampage, Hangman Page wondered why it's always been Renee Paquette interviewing him about Mox. I've been wondering this for weeks. Page was incensed that some think their hot rivalry ended on a lucky pinfall. Sabian, who just lost to Mox, told Hangman to grow up because shit happens. Hangman took a swing. Sabian avoided him, and it seemed like that they would fight. And I'm glad they addressed the elephant in the room, being Renee but this would have been better placed on Dynamite. At least that's what I thought. On Dynamite, we had Mox and Claudio against Roosh and Preston Vance in the Tornado tag team match. This was booked after the Danielson attack last week. So it furthers our point that BCC has strangely been nowhere to be found getting Bryan's back all of these weeks, but they're happy to wrestle in a match for him. Uh, The heels attacked in the crowd during the BCC entrance. Vance speared Mox off the apron tope style into the other men, Claudio wrapped a chain around his fist to beat down Vance so that he could blade. Mox also bladed earlier in the match because, of course, he did. Uh, Jose hit Claudio, so Yuta ran in. Claudio caught Rouge flying with a European uppercut outside, and Mox ultimately got the win by hitting the hammer elbows and choking Vance out with the chain while in a leverage armbar. Hangman was angry watching backstage when he suddenly got blindsided by Sabian, Butcher, and Blade ahead of their scheduled match on Dynamite. So, as always... I appreciate when AEW actually goes and uses Tornado Rules for a tag team match, given that's how most, not all, but most of their matches operate anyway. This was exactly what we expected coming in with two guys blading and BCC winning. Fun TV, some extremely inventive spots in the match. It made it entertaining, but it didn't have any long-term relevance going in either direction. And I didn't think it was good enough to get graded either. It was just kind of entertaining. Now on Dynamite, we did have the Hangman and Sabian match. Page was relatively dominant throughout. He had a huge lariat and one with Deadeye. I always appreciate when a strongly built wrestler wins without his true finisher. It needs to happen a lot more, both in AEW and WWE. It happens more frequently in AEW than it does in WWE, and that's a credit to the match agency and the way they produce things. After the bell, commentary sold that something's going on with Hangman mentally. BCC entered the ring almost shield style with Mox saying their business is finished. And while he respects Page, he has no fear for him because Page will never beat him again. Hangman said he's not happy with the last match result and Mox can't be happy winning with a ball and chain roll up. So Hangman appeared to challenge him for a last man standing match or evolution. He kept saying, we're going to see who the last man standing is. It just seemed pretty obvious. Uh, Mox was glad that Hangman has no friends to talk him out of it when suddenly Dark Order's music hit. Evil Uno charges past Page, gets in Mox's face, saying they aren't afraid of him before shoving Mox in the face and staring him down. I will admit, it's always funny when you have someone in a full mask, like not a lucha mask where the mouth is open, but when someone's wearing a full mask and they're trying to cut a promo, and it just sounds muffled, uh, it always reminds me there's a uh, clip on the Howard Stern show where they go went to, I think it's a Star Wars convention, there's a guy, Darth Nihilus, and he tries to talk in this mask, and it it didn't work from a... Uh, audio engineering perspective. And I couldn't help but laugh the entire time I'm watching this happen. I'm like, this is so ridiculous. Evil Uno, this large dude in a mask who's like a comedy wrestler, like talking shit to John Moxley, who's basically bleeding from the face or, or recently bled from the face and has cuts all over. It was just a funny perspective, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was fun to see. Uh, and I like that. You know, Dark Order came out and had Hangman's back, but I just couldn't get that whole thing out of my head. So anyway, Evil Uno charges past him. He gets in Mox's face. He's like, we're not afraid of you. Um, and then they stare each other down. Mox ends up looking past Evil Uno and accepts Hangman's challenge, but he accepts it as a Texas death Match before Paige argued with Uno and Dark Order as BCC left the ring. Now, of course, it's another fucking death match for these guys. Sarcasm aside, it always made sense to blow off this feud at Revolution. Would I have preferred a different stipulation? Absolutely. But this is Mox, he gets to do what he wants, and that's bleed. Plus, this is Hangman's signature match in AEW. Now, it would have been perhaps cool for Mox to say tongue in cheek, not only do I accept, I'll beat you at your favorite match, let's do a Texas death match. Really, if Hangman was smart, he would challenge for a first blood match, he gets in the ring with Mox, he wins in 94 seconds, he takes the rest of the night off. Even though Dark Order is irrelevant, it did feel fresh to see Uno show some balls and get in Mox's face. I presume they're going to fight soon with Hangman saving Uno from getting murdered. All in all, a pretty successful build to the number two revolution storyline, but it does leave a lot to be desired. And much of the promo kind of rang hollow because we've heard it so many times from them already. On Dynamite, Renee sat down with Adam Cole who squeezed more sympathy out of his concussion recovery. He said the AEW roster is stacked and has never been better, which means he needs to be prepared. He said his return will be good, both for himself and for AEW. Now this was promoted uh, throughout the week as a newsworthy, notable interview. Literally nothing new was shared, nothing. I get they wanted a big moment at the Los Angeles show with Cole's return. That provided a big moment. But dragging this out week to week has been eye-rolling. At least get the guy into something verbally with whomever he's going to fight at Revolution. We're only three weeks away. Now, if he is not going to have a singles match at the show, putting him in the casino ladder match or something would make a lot of sense. Let's not forget, Adam Cole won the North American Championship in the inaugural ladder match in NXT. So there are parallels there. They could also do a surprise opponent, maybe debut Jay White as an AEW roster member on the show, if that's a deal that's been reached between him and AEW. Rumors are that he's more likely WWE bound, but look, just being candid, Tony's best card that he plays is finding and signing talent and then riding that wave for a couple of weeks. He may have to pay up for White if he can get that viewed as a direct win over WWE. It would also make perfect sense for Cole's return given that's the match in which he suffered his concussion. But that's all dependent, of course, on White signing with AEW. Over WWE. That's just one idea I had, something I wanted to put out there. On Dynamite, Jim Ross sat down with Wardlow, who talked about his father not being in his life until he was a young adult, only to learn that his dad had stage four cancer and then he died soon afterward. His dad did get to see him do one independent show. He explained that he grew out his hair and beard for the first time in his life and kept that look as a connection to his father, who had both. But Joe knew that because apparently they talked about personal stuff backstage, and it was the reason why Joe cut off Wardlow's ponytail, which made their feud personal. The positive here is this was a good sympathy-building segment for Wardlow, who finally provided the audience with some insight into his personality, his upbringing, and his character. We finally got something to chew on beyond big, strong dude who does power bombs. The negative is this story should have been established in kayfabe before the haircut happened. That way, it actually mattered in the moment instead of just seemed weird. Also, this happened six weeks ago on December 28th. So now, 50 days later, we learn the reason why his ponytail was cut off. And it sounds to me more like closing a plot hole than actual plot. How do you have this guy say this, now and not the week or two weeks after it happened at an absolute minimum. So again, this was well done, but the rest of it was really thin to say the absolute least. On Rampage, Dustin Rhodes said in a backstage promo, Swerve Strickland crossed the line by mentioning his family, promising Swerve would not tarnish their name. He promised to come after his blood and soul when mogul affiliates easily beat him up two-on-one, with Swerve threatening him after and saying, happy Black History Month. Half of Dustin's promo was nonsensical. The black history comment was nonsensical. And again, this storyline is nonsensical. Market Zero! On Dynamite, there was an All-Atlantic championship match. Orange Cassidy against Lee Moriarty. Soakley Hathaway used his wrist cast to block Danhausen's curse. Orange hit a Tope Su Tornado DDT plus a diving DDT, beach break, and an orange punch. Moriarty still came back with a Motor City stretch, but Orange countered into I think it's a seatbelt pinning combination for the win that's really being overused in aew let me just put that out there Uh, satnam singh walked on stage to distract as jeff jarrett and Jay lethal with the golden globe attacked from behind and also took out best friends acclaimed saved orange from a guitar shot and that's it the match was fine it was appropriate for rampage but not in a main event slot and acclaimed being thrown back into a match with these guys that they used to feud with for convenience that is vince mcmahon booking it's just not good On Dynamite, we got that match. Orange, best friends and acclaimed against Jarrett, Lethal, Singh, and Sanjay Dutt. This opened Dynamite. The Guns stood on stage taunting halfway through. Jarrett ate an orange punch on the apron. Then Dutt took Scissor Me Timbers with the faces winning in like 12 minutes. It was just nothing. On Dynamite, the Guns' first title defense was announced as a triple threat at Revolution with the teams being decided by a tag team battle royal next week. And then get this folks, a casino tag team battle royal in two weeks. A claim interrupted the announcement claiming they were screwed out of the titles. So they are invoking their rematch clause to make it a fatal four-way. This was wholly unimpressive. The entirety of the booking was unimpressive. And I want to break down all the ways that this is nonsensical. And I'm going to get even more upset than I was about Briggs Jensen, Fallon Henley, and Kiana James. Okay. Number one, If the plan was always a triple threat or fatal four-way, why the fuck were the titles taken off acclaimed in a situation where they had to take the fall, even via cheating last week? You could have taken the titles off of them in a triple threat or fatal four-way without them losing at all. Two, why was the match booked as a triple threat? What's the reasoning? It's their first title defense. Why are they going up against two competitors? Three, if you're doing two qualifiers... Why the fuck are both of them battle royals? How about getting a little creative? Winner of the battle royal gets in, the two teams eliminated last, fight for the final spot. One battle royal and one gauntlet. Or how about one battle royal and a claim to get the other spot given how they lost the titles automatically and you have a triple threat. Number four, since when does AEW have a rematch clause? The entire booking of this was, at least to me, legitimately infuriating. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. The way AEW Creative is going these days, it's almost like Tony Khan is putting the shows together week to week. This may not be the worst that AEW has booked shows, but in totality, it's close. And speaking of that, on Dynamite, the Elite were back holding basketballs because... Tony Khan owns Round Ball Rock and it's NBA All-Star Weekend. Uh, basically, they're promoting the game for TNT, the All-Star Game, without mentioning the network. Not once did they say the NBA All-Star Game on TNT to tell people where to watch it. Top Flight and AR Fox stepped up wanting a rematch. Kenny Omega was about to accept, but Don Callis turned it down. So Dante Martin questioned their balls and Kenny's like, all right, let's fight. Wasn't one of AEW's like main promises, hey, we're not going to give you rematch after rematch. All we're getting these days seems to be rematches. This is the definition of that. It's a rematch for no reason. There's not even a storyline reason to do the rematch and no one is gonna benefit from the Elite beating a team that they already beat. What we got from these six last week was great. That's it, you don't need to do it again. The most interesting thing in this segment was a quick glitch during the Elite promo, which was basically a wavy House of Black image. So I presume the booking is gonna be House of Black Attacking maybe at Rampage next week on Dynamite, eventually leading to a title match, maybe even at Revolution. The problem is House of Black needs to be the team that beats the Elite for the titles, and doing a two week or three week storyline for that to happen after the Elite just won the titles back after a seven match series doesn't make any sense. So, hopefully, this is a tease of what's to come after Revolution, but really, Elite. House of Black is a pay per view level match. And when you do it, the titles should change hands. We still have the whole Eddie Kingston Ortiz thing that House of Black is tangentially involved with. Maybe they were just used as a device for that. We'll talk about that a little bit later. I, I just don't know what they're going to do here, but I did like the tease and it has us talking about it. And that was the purpose of them doing it. On Rampage, Jungle Boy fought Ryan Nemeth. Jungle Boy won quickly with a sliding elbow strike and mentioned that he wants a title. Brian Cage walked out and slashed his throat. Commentary said they have unfinished business from Winter is Coming. I'm not being dense. I legitimately don't remember them feuding, having beef, or anything like that. But Jungle Boy, Cage is a good matchup. This was another example, though, of like getting someone to win Jungle Boy on Rampage because they have a bigger match coming up on Dynamite rather than just telling a different story on Rampage that's interesting. So we had Jungle Boy and Cage On Dynamite, uh, there was a great counter into an inverted Alabama slam-style sit-down powerbomb from Cage. Jungle Boy also ate a buckle bomb and a flatliner, but he came back with a crucifix bomb, that sliding elbow finisher, and a schoolboy for the win. Nice storyline victory. It's kind of strange how he and commentary both point out he wants to go after a singles title, but they won't specify which one. Well, there's a world title, and he's not at that level yet. Samojo holds two, and Orange Babyface has the other but there was seemingly a reason why they did not specify what title he wanted to go after and why they were being vague. And that's because Christian Cage returned with his arm in a sling right after the match. He went after Jungle Boy with mace, then removed his sling and the arm brace before hitting kill switch on the stage. Now, this is generally what you do when an injury derails booking. So it's not a surprise that they're going back to this with a quick, you know, three week build before revolution. Hopefully once that match ends and Jungle Boy beats Christian, We can all move on. Also, it is fair to say that if he does beat Christian, surely he then would be a legitimate contender for one of those titles, maybe even the guy who takes the TNT strap from Samoa Joe at some point down the road if Wardlow does not at Revolution. On Rampage, Mark Briscoe was cutting a promo when Mark Sterling interrupted with Briscoe declining his help. So the guy who's Tony Nese's partner got in his face, Josh Evans, Josh Woods, um, uh, they fought before in Ring of Honor. They made a match for Dynamite at least there was a reason given for it. So we got Briscoe against Woods. Yeah, Josh Woods, uh, Lucha Bros returned to get Briscoe's back when he was outnumbered. Woods hit a great swinging Uranagi off the apron outside. Briscoe came back with a razor's edge out of the corner, rolling Death Valley driver and froggy bow, like a really nice frog splash elbow drop for the win fun match. Honestly, it was probably my favorite segment of the first hour of dynamite loved Briscoe's finisher. That was great. They promoted that the Lucha Bros would return on the show, but this was their return. And I'm not saying that's like the worst thing in the world, but I, I was excited for them to be back. I thought they were going to sink their teeth into a storyline that was really exciting. Instead, it was just this. Wish we got a little more from it. Uh, on Rampage, Impractical Jokers came out with Floyd and made fun of it for being a small bat. Chris Jericho said at least he has big balls and brought out JAS to take it back. They lightly beat up the civilians and powerbombed the thin bald guy into the bearded guy who was laying on a table. Holy shit, was this terribly unfunny. Beyond that, it lacked even a shred of entertainment value. Zero point zero. On Rampage, Ricky Starks promised he'd take down the JAS, starting with Daniel Garcia next week. On Dynamite, Jericho denied Starks another match because he's not at his level. Garcia said he's sick of hearing Starks. The rest of JAS co-signed. Garcia just, he needs to learn when he's cutting a promo, Stop just pointing like a politician every single time you say a phrase. Also, sound less robotic, please. This is just an ice-cold storyline at this point. Jericho Starks at Revolution will be a hot match on the show. The crowd will be into it. Hopefully, Starks wins, gets a big pop. Like, that'll be cool. There's no denying that, but the storyline is absolute dog shit. And lastly, uh, just some one-offs on Rampage. Darby Allin promised Ortiz he'd have his back before Sting spoke up saying they would go out in a blaze of glory. I presume he was referring to his forthcoming but unscheduled slash unannounced retirement. Ortiz also admitted he messed up by letting his emotions take over. But he also said, hey, Eddie Kingston, you messed up too. And while I'm always gonna stand with you, I'll stand against you if I need to. So they're gonna fight at some point. Who knows when that's gonna be. I don't like that storyline at all. We've discussed it ad nauseum. So folks, that was Dynamite and Rampage for this week. And hopefully you understand, as I broke it down, why I had such a major problem with what AEW gave us. It largely felt like three hours of Rampage. That's kind of like the best way to describe what AEW TV was. You know, obviously, MJF and and Brian Danielson, that went well. And there's a couple other storylines that, you know, certainly make sense on the way into revolution, but there's just nothing to sink your teeth into, nothing to really get excited about. And I'm not talking about them needing a Roman Reigns, bloodline, Sami Zayn, Cody Rhodes storyline, like what we're getting from WWE. How about just something as good as like Judgment Day with Edge and Beth Phoenix, like you know something moderately interesting. Again, we have a couple things with the two kind of co-main event storylines, but the rest of the show is just lacking massively and it was really, really difficult to get excited about AEW this week. So folks, that is how we are wrapping up today's show. Thank you once again for listening. A reminder of what is still to come here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. We will be back Saturday night with two shows. First, we will have a live WWE Elimination Chamber pre-show on Twitter. Spaces, is approximately 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter. At Getting Overcast, you get to participate in that show, ask questions, provide comments. We will also post pre- and post-show polls on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast for Elimination Chamber. And once you vote in those, we will read those grades in our WWE Elimination Chamber Instant Analysis Podcast podcast which you will find in this exact feed shortly after Elimination Chamber goes off the air, Saturday night, Sunday morning, as soon as we can complete it and get it up. So do not miss those shows on Saturday. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for everything I just mentioned, episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more. And please remember, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's all about... so head on over to apple Podcasts and spotify leave those five star ratings on apple take a little extra time leave a five star written review because if you do we will read it live right here on the show thank you all once again for listening do not forget to join us saturday for big wwe elimination chamber shows at this point the silver king is gonna sign off and leave you with just three final words bye for now